One second while I pack something first. Om Jnana Timirandasya Gyananjana Shalakaya Chakshur Unmilitam Yehina Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Siddhantot Palasada Nityarasikam Hamsam Vilasatmikam Audaryakya Sudhamma Sevagadanam Vishrambha Bhakti Pradam Yajna Yuti Vichakshanam Dvagabido Vaishishta Shakjasada Vandeham Triparari Namakayatim Shri Bhakti Vedantinam Shri Guru Paramananda Premananda Pralapada Rajananda Pradhananda Sevayamaniyo Jaya Namo Mahavaranaya Krishna Prema Pradayate Krishnaya Krishna Chaitanya Namne Gortashe Namaha He Krishna Karuna Sindhu Dina Bando Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namo Stute Tapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavaneshwari Vrishavanu Sutta Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vancha Kalpaturubhyascha Kripasindubhyevacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namaha. Hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I feel like a Truman on the Truman Show. Um, so I'd like to thank everybody for joining today and to thank the devotees who have come before me in this Top of Vivek class series. I have learned so much from the variety of classes um, that have been given. And I'd like to give a special shout out to um, Brigupad Prabhu for his class on how to give classes, um, where he offers tips, which I'm going to try to implement. I was hoping it would help me with the fear level of giving class. And I thought I would be here all cool, calm and collected, but yeah, not, not, not so far, but anyway, we're gonna give it a shot. The one thing that I um, valued from Brigapad Prabhu's class was when he said, do not try to be a big speaker, very learned. Um, 
you know, we we've heard that, at least I've heard it in my Krishna conscious upbringing, that you shouldn't say something unless you're you sh shouldn't give a class unless you're realized and that you really know the subject matter and you're fully conversed in it. And then when you're asked to give a class on bhakti, it's like, uh, well, yeah, I don't think I can do that. Failure is already um, built in. But, you know, the the gap between where I really am and and our ideal is just that chasm is just filled with fear and doom and gloom. So when I heard Brigapabu say, you know, just say something that the audience could benefit from hearing. So, well, that's within the realm of possibilities. I'll try to work on that and, and focus on that. I'd also, uh, have benefited a lot from Krishangi's classes. The confidence in which she speaks Harikata is so enthusing to me. Um, you know, she just boldly declares, just like Krishna says to do, boldly declare that um, my words can see you through, that everything is in the Gita. So I, I really appreciate her for, for bringing that point out and for having that confidence. So today I, I'm going to ask all of you to um, please find something, at least one thing in the class that will help enthuse you in your practice of Krishna consciousness. So then this class will be successful. And my Gurudev will be pleased with me and pleased with everyone. So thank you. Um, Shamananda, Amprabhu, when he was speaking about our Guru Maharaj, uh, Swami Tripurari, he and he spoke so beautifully and had great ideas on how, how to approach, uh, how to approach that. Um, he brought out that we will make real progress um, in our devotional practices when we walk our talk, that there are people amongst us, there are devotees amongst us that are proof of that, that how we move in the world um, is, is important. So this is also the, the focus of Gurunishra Prabhu's classes, his class series titled The Intentional Sadika where he gives tips and tactics um, that are successfully used in worlds of talk other than, than bhakti. Um, he pulls from the world of meditation and mindfulness and from self-help um, worlds where tools are designed to help us interface our internal world with our external world in a beneficial way. And he demonstrates demonstrated how to um, how these tools can be used by the sadaka in order to enhance our practices. This series, which I've called "Unmasking Demons in the Kingdom of the Heart," is also aimed at learning some tools to better align our walk with our talk. 
But unlike um, Guru Prabhu's class, um, where he took cues from the world and dovetailed them or pointed them to that world, to the transcendental world, I am going to be using cues from the transcendental world that point to our world, that point to the world of the sadaka. There is a saying, as above, so below. And um, as this series develops, we'll see more and more how this is true and how we can draw out from our sadhya, from our goal, from the land where we want to go in order to facilitate our sadhana, our method for going there. Specifically, we'll be looking at the demons of Braj. Um, sometimes you can get a fuller understanding about something by looking at what it's not. Um, when I personally am trying to understand a, a word, I love words and I try to figure out what they actually mean, where they came from. So I Google it. And in addition to looking at the synonyms, you know, what it means, how it could be explained in different ways, I study the antonyms. And I find that this really adds to the, the richness of, of the subject. And it reveals the nuances, the things that it's not. So it's like by discriminating between 500 shades of gray in order to find white, then white actually glows more in its own glory. The Bhagavatam itself speaks about Krishna in this way also. He, they, it speaks directly and indirectly. So there are so many things discussed there. There's like the, um, the universal creation. There's the secondary creation, the living entities, the Lord's protection of the devotees, Manvantara's long section on the Manus, um, the Lord's various incarnations, annihilation, and liberation. And all of that is to bring us to understand better the supreme shelter or Krishna. So all these topics are circling around the conclusion of Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. So it is helpful um, to sometimes look at what something is not in order to understand what it is. Also in the, the Gita, the Chatur Shloki, where Krishna is wanting to share his sweetness with Arjuna and the rest of us, um, he does so by first indirectly speaking about his power, his glory, so that the Madhurya is all the more radiant when it is juxtaposed to his Aishvarya. And in chapter 16, called Godly and Ungodly Nature, Krishna talks about both, not to teach us really what is ungodly, because he wants us to be that way, but it's to enhance our understanding of what 
is godly. And this is the process of discernment. Discernment, which I looked up on Google because I love to study words, um, means to separate. It separates what's important or true from what's not. And an uh, interesting thing when I was looking up this word, um, it said it was in the, the realm of Christianity, but it gave this definition of discernment, the perception and the absence of judgment with a view to obtaining spiritual guidance and understanding. So I thought that was um, pretty cool. It's um, so like I said, it is helpful to see how much of what is not bhakti is within us still. Then we can engage in a practice in such a way that we can see that these things are leaving us or better, we can say we are leaving them. This practice, this is our sadhana. And we have been conditioned since, well, forever. This means that our entire existence, for as long as we have been, we've been controlled by the material energy. And although in theory, we're superior to this energy, we are currently nonetheless shackled by her oppressive tactics. So we can think of some populations that we may have heard about or experienced where people are oppressed. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind are Native Americans who continue to be oppressed um, today under the control of, of our government and society. And also um, Jewish people in Nazi Germany. Everything in the environment is aimed at keeping them captive. So it's no different really than, than Maya herself. She has her agents, so much propaganda feeding the false ego. I mean, just look at advertisements, you know, advertising agencies, they're her like prime henchmen and they promise the, the life of a demigod if you could just have the latest thingamajig. Also, you know, motivational speakers who promise that we can be anything. There was that philosophy that was touted not too long ago called the secret where you can have anything and pseudo-spiritualists where you are everything. Excuse me. I am being directed. Oh, everything's cool. <laughs> that was my technician, my husband. So, you know, those are some of Maya's agents. What to speak of the three modes of material nature, those ropes, we are never going to untangle those things. No way. It's like, you know, if somebody has you tied with a rope and we have a, a toothpick and we're trying, we have to break this, you know, ginormous rope, forget it, ain't happening. So the, um, 
another thing is the very thing that we are made of, you know, the tools that we have, the toothpicks that we have to cut through the rope, they are the senses which are prone to illusion and deception. And then those illusions and deceptions are all aggregated within the mind, which then the mind informs the intelligence. So we really have, there's no hope to do it on our own. These things, they act like our friends, but they're double agents and they are formidable foes. Krishna says, Daivahi Esha Gunamai, Mama Maya Dorataya. This divine energy of mine, consisting of the three modes of material nature, is very difficult to overcome. So why is it so difficult? Why are, is it so formidable? Because Krishna says, Maya Shakti is divine. She is a servant of Krishna. And she takes her service very seriously. What is her job? What's her service? It's the same as ours, to keep unwanted things out. The problem is, in our current condition, we are the unwanted things. Imagine if we were allowed to go to Vaikuntha in our current condition with our shoes on, so to speak, it would no longer be Vaikuntha. The inhabitants would be demanding a refund and it would become true that Jeevas fall from Vaikuntha because there would be, they would be looking to get out. So what to do if we can't extricate ourselves from our own nonsense and our condition? What are we to do? Don't worry, Krishna tells us. Mam eva ye prapadyante, mayam etam tarantite. Those who sur have surrendered unto me can easily cross beyond it. So, in one sense, in a real sense, there are no obstacles on the path of bhakti. It's, it's like sometimes it's said, that there are actually no demons in Galok. There's a sense of them. They feel that they're there, but the presence of the demon actually is not there. Some Acharyas say that and some Acharyas say some, something else. But we can learn that the, it, that the obstacle itself is really not on the path of bhakti. It's, it doesn't matter if I am a woman or a man, an American, an African, and rich or poor or sharp or dull. Bhakti is truly an equal opportunity movement. Her mercy is falling everywhere. I have a personal story um, which happened to me very early on in my journey in Krishna consciousness. Um, I was in the ISKCON Boston Temple, and in my mind, the, um, the temple was very narrow and very long. 
you know how when people go, there's that, when people go fishing, they say, oh, I caught a fish that was this big. Well, to me, that temple was miles long and very narrow. So at one end were all of the, the was the Vyasasan and all of the devote, the men devotees were up there and the women were miles away in the back of the, the temple room. And they started throwing out prashadam. This was like a pastime that they would do. They throw up prashadam, which means mercy. So here are the men in the front getting all the mercy and the women, you know, the really fallen ones are in the back, not getting the mercy. I was thinking, dang, this is so unfair. You know, we're the ones who are fallen. We need it more. We, you know, this isn't working. Temples are for us. We're, we're sentimental. We're supposed to be up there. And just as I was thinking those thoughts, a rose, a long-stemmed rose, just came flying over everybody's head miles from miles away. And it just landed in my hands. And that just obliterated any thought I could have about there being obstacles on the path. Really, there aren't. The only ones that are there are the ones that we allow to be there. Like if you have, there's a little, you know, there's a little block in the middle of the room, a little wooden block in the middle of the room, and you want to go out the door. It's, it's not really blocking you, but you could say, oh, I can't go, you know, there's this wooden block in the way. Yeah, no, it's not, it's not really there. It's what we make of it that makes it be there. So everyone is welcome in the temple of bhakti, but this doesn't mean that there's not work to do. It doesn't mean that we can fit everything through the door, like the leave your, you know, you have to take your shoes off example. I, the image that comes to my mind is of Winnie the Pooh and he's trying to fit through the hole of his tree to get to the honey and he's stuck. He can't get through. So just like that, you know, we can't fit thing, everything through the door of bhakti. It just won't work. Otherwise, those residents of Vaikuntha will be leaving. So this is unwanted baggage. And this unwanted baggage is referred to as anartas. Unwanted things or obstacles in the path to bhakti. So there are obstacles and there are not obstacles. Because, you know, this is Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Everything's here, both things. So we are entering a different realm, a different type of existence, a different energy. And anything other than love of God is not going to work. It's not going to work. 
and it will become dead weight and it will hold us back. From Bhaktivinoda Thakur, um, his Sri Chaitanya Shikshastakam, I mean, I'm sorry, Shikshamrita. He says, as long as the creeper is bound in the material world made of prakriti, mahatattva, ahankar, form, taste, smell, touch, sound, the five knowledge gathering senses, the five senses of action, the mind, earth, water, fire, air, ether, goodness, passion, and ignorance, there will be obstacles to its growth. So as long as we are in the material conception of life, we can expect obstacles to the development of bhakti. It's, it is the nature of our conditioning. That's what it means to be conditioned. And we shouldn't freak out when we see it. And when we see the weeds come into the garden, it's natural. It's natural. But we shouldn't let the weeds take over the garden either. They, if you've ever had a garden, you, you know that they certainly will do that. You go away for a week and you come back and it's like, hello, there's no garden, it's all weeds. But in the spiritual conception of life, by associating with spiritual energy, not only are the weeds burnt up, but the weed seeds will be burnt as well. As we know, the iron rod, it does not have fire inherently within it. However, it does contain the capacity to do so by association. So by putting that rod in the fire, it will burn just as fire. So the sarup shakti is the active principle the active principle of that fire. And she is the purifying agent itself of sadhana that burns our shoes off, our own feet, so to speak. Sadhana is meant to change us, to transform us, just like the fire has the power to do. And in the beginning of change is to remove the unwanted things from our lives, things which no longer serve us, anartas, false values. Now, does this mean, you know, some people could think, well, the unwanted thing in my life is my husband or my wife or my children or a job or, you know, action in the material world. No, those are not the unwanted things. The unwanted things is how we approach those aspects of, of our life. So it's, it's how we falsely value those things in our life. That's what's got to go, how we falsely value those. This is called anartanavritti. It is the removal of unwanted things. It itself, Nartanavritti itself, from how I'm kind of understanding it now, is that it's not an action in and of itself. It's not like we engage in a Nartanavritti, but rather we engage in sadhana. And by associating with a purifying agent of bhakti, the result 
is anartanivritti. These anartas, by the way, they were not always obstacles or unwanted per se. They, they helped us. They were our friends. They were our soldiers. They protected and served a certain sense of I, the small sense of I. Now we have a different sense of I. I am an aspiring devotee. Our new identity requires new goals and the goals define what is favorable and what is unfavorable in relation to who we think we are. What is good and what is bad is being redefined. That which facilitates my service to Sri Guru and to Sri Garanga, that which calls my progress on the path of bhakti, that which increases my enthusiasm, dedicate myself to the angas of bhakti, shravanam, kirtanam, smarnam. Those things, those are good. To accept those things favorable in Krishna consciousness and to reject those things that are unfavorable, that is like the Paribas Sutra. It's the regulator, the king ruling over all other rules and regulations. Those things that do not support our Krishna consciousness, they got to go. So the tendencies and qualities that no longer serve our identity as a devotee, those demons, they have got to go. But as we know, nobody likes to be rejected. So they're a little pissed off. They are not ready to be left behind. The Anartas, they are bullies. So how do we deal with bullies? We bring our stronger friend. We invite Krishna into our heart. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Smaranam. That is how we invite him into our heart. By hearing the pastimes, calling out to that Krishna in those pastimes. And even though our level of Smaranam is not at the stage of Samadhi and we're not entering into those pastimes like advanced devotees do, by recalling the pastimes, we will learn what to do and how to do it. So oftentimes devotees ask about the relationship between endeavor and mercy. So I see it like this. If we want to have a garden, wanting it is not enough. It's not going to make it happen. What will make it happen is, we, is if we start to plant it, cultivate it, nurture it, provide the environment for its growth. But if you've ever had a garden, you'll notice that in addition to our labor, the labor from our side, there is magic. It is a magical process. You feel it when your seeds sprout into tiny little plants and the first flowers, then they transform into fruits. Did we, did we do that? I had nothing to do with that. I don't know how to do that. Did, did we send the taproot down into the soil? Did I create photosynthesis and make it work? Did I make the plant absorb 
nutrients through its roots and carry them into the fruits? No, that is not, we don't have the potential to do that. We do the work so that the magic can happen. So what is the work on our side? What is the, the work on our side of, of the process of bhakti? It is to cry out to Krishna. That is our work. And what is the magic on the invisible side of the process? The magic is he comes. So I have another personal story about this. And I hope my daughter doesn't mind. I didn't ask her ahead of time. But when she was three years old, uh, we went to Vrindavan. And her, it was during Kartik. So there was Dhammadarastikam in the evening, which she loved to do, to go to. And her father had already left and gone to the temple. And I had a really bad fever. I, I was staying behind. And I had decided that we weren't going to go that evening but she didn't know that and she was getting ready to go at, remember she's three but she was very enthusiastic and she's like okay you know let's go and I'm like well no we're not going to to go today I don't I don't feel good so she proceeded to explain how she could go herself now at this time there was no um MVT, there was no community built right behind the temple. They were just starting to do that. And we were in an ashram uh, called Shivananda Ashram that was farther down the road. It was not such a far walk, but for a three-year-old by herself, it was a far walk. And there was this giant bull every night that would just ram his horns into this gigantic pile of, of um, cinders, you know, of uh, stones. And so I reminded her of these things. I said, you know, it's getting dark. She's like, I can bring a flashlight. Well, what about the, what about the bull? I'll just go around him. You know, what about this? What about that? She had an answer for everything. And I'm like, no, it's not, you're, you're not going to go. So then she would start to open the door. She was going and, and I pushed the door closed and, and locked it. So that still didn't work for her. She then proceeded to just lay down on the floor and bang her fists and feet. And she shouted, Krishna, Krishna, save me from this terrible demon. I was defeated. Krishna saved her from this terrible demon. So to that, I hope I never, I don't think I could ever for, forget that. It really imprinted into my heart what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to tread this path. You know, first she used her intelligence, her reasoning, and that was insufficient to remove the demon. Then she tried her own effort, you know, her strength, her prowess in, separate, in separation from Krishna. And that proved insignificant. But then when she fully turned to Krishna and cried out to him, that just obliterated the demon and no longer existed. And of course, I put on my sari and we went to the temple having the demon slayed. So uh, that is what we are meant to do. Bhaktivinoda Thakur says in his Sri Chaitanya Shikshas, 
Shikshastakam, that the devotee who worships the holy name should first petition the Lord for the strength to cast out all these unfavorable tendencies and should pray thus before Lord Hari on a daily basis. By doing so, by, I'm sorry, by doing this regularly, the devotee's heart will eventually become purified. Sri Krishna has killed a number of demons which arise in the kingdom of the heart. So in order to destroy these problems, a devotee must cry very humbly before the Lord and admit defeat. Then the Lord will nullify all contaminations. Bhaktivinoda Thakur has seen <clears throat> certain qualities in the various Rajlila demons that might represent within our own heart um, and are a hiding place for false or misplaced values. So a little background into Bhaktivinoda Thakur's time that I feel it's important to understand what was going on. The, the entire Indian belief system and religion was being challenged by the rationality brought by the British. They brought science, technology, and they were being looked up to by the in certain ways by the Indian intelligentsia class. And not only did they bring those things, but with it, they brought a linear kind of thinking. So the Indians, they were struggling and how to legitimize their faith. Vaishnavs were wondering how to present the Leelas in a way that would be accepted by Western thought. If they present the Leelas like a myth, a story that never happened, then they would look kind of silly, worshiping a God based on imagination, like a fairy tale. If they presented the Leelas as historical, then you know, as, as it happened exactly as it's said in the scriptures, then they would also look kind of silly because how can you have a 12 mile snake? And how can that little baby suck out someone's life? And how is this little blue boy the supreme absolute truth? So that wasn't really gonna work. So many opted for a third presentation. <clears throat> Uh, metaphorical. And it is a story. It's presented as if it's a story that has an ultimate meaning behind the characters in the story. The problem with this method is that the real people, they're not just characters. Krishna really is a person. Everybody in the Leelas are people. They do exist. So if you present it as if it's just a metaphor, then Krishna disappears. Krishna as a person gets explained away. So this also became a problem. And this is what Srila Prabhupada 
was referring to when he says we shouldn't um, think of things in this way. We shouldn't think of them metaphorically. <clears throat> but some people, there is there is a benefit to thinking about it metaphorically, especially the way Bhaktivinoda Thakur does. He presents the Leela um, as a, a different level of reality. He presents where you can use the metaphorical so that it points to the transcendental. To make Goita Vaishnavism respectable to the intelligent class, to the people who were ruled by this linear rationality. He took them through the metaphorical door into the realm of transcendence. Krishna's pastimes happen on a transcendental level. There are deeper levels of meaning, metaphorical meaning, and there's higher levels of consciousness, transcendental. <clears throat> so these stories, these leelas are not just <clears throat> sentimental, they are also metaphorical. And this is what the story, and this is this is the story and this is what it means. So he presented them to use, challenge them to use your, under, your intelligence to understand what represents what. This, so he, Srila Bhaktivinoda he found within the demons that this demon represents this anarta. <clears throat> Well, if you want to destroy that demon and to do that, you have to practice bhakti yoga. <clears throat> and when you practice bhakti, you will rise to the transcendental platform. So that was his goal all along. It was his trick, dare we say, preaching strategy to use metaphorical apparatuses to take people to the transcendental platform. In his Sri Chaitanya Shikshamrita, Srila Bhaktivinoda um, gives us a list of demons and the corresponding anartas. And he basically says, this demon represents this anarta. There are, however, many, any number of tendencies that could be seen embodied in a particular demon. We don't have to approach the demons in the kingdom of the heart in a direct representational way, like this means that. But I'd like to approach it more like um, Lord Chaitanya, learning from the grass and learning from the trees. It's, the grass isn't just representing humility and the tree's tolerance. They're actually there existing in their own world. They have a life and meaning independent of me. And I can learn something from them that can be applied to myself. I have an affinity for this type of approach. I'm, I like Native American philosophy for the way that it teaches us to look at the world and um, 
animals within the world. And they think that things have carry a medicine. That's what they call it. What is the medicine of this animal? What is the medicine of this plant? So the medicine is the lesson that will help us identify our obstacles, identify our misconceptions, those very things that need to be left behind. So I, this is, I truly believe that everything holds a lesson for us and we, that it can move us closer and closer to our deepest desires and our, our heart is like a compass and our deepest desires are our magnetized north. We can learn from everything, from every person that crosses our path in a way that moves us closer to our goals. So next week, we will begin speaking more directly about some of the demons in Braj that Krishna had to deal with and what we can learn about dealing with our own demons. So I would like now um, to ask you all for any corrections that to mistakes that I have made or any comments or any questions, you can feel free to unmute yourself and hopefully I will be able to hear you. Okay. I don't hear anything, so I hope that just doesn't mean I don't have my audio on. All right, that's it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I hope you were able to extricate at least one thing from all the words that I just said to help you on your path. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Srimati Bhakti Rasadevi Ki Jai.